Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a sage and informed observer of tech, science, and culture, the author of at least two books, and a journalist whose work can be seen in the Times Magazine, Wired, and also three times per week on his page at medium.com, which I personally subscribed to just this week so I could read more of his stuff. Hello and welcome Clive Thompson. Hey, good to be here. First of all, congratulations. Solid first name. <laughs> it's British. Uh, well, British Canadian. I'm originally Canadian. And so there's not a lot of Clives in the United States. Rebel colony that we are. I'm actually now an American also. So whenever I run into a Clive, it's always like someone from the, you know, the British colonies. It's like Britain or there's a lot of Jamaican dudes I run into. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, or Clive. That that's about it. It's a it's a rare one in the U.S. Is Clive short for something? Nope. Uh, no, oh, it's not. So thing. It, it it comes from I, I believe an old English word that means ditch, uh, or, or perhaps uh, like a, a cleft in a cliff. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I, I I I instinctively respect a man named Clive, and maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's why I responded to your work. I forget what one of these. Uh, sites that collates things and suggests them to you tip me off to this article that you posted somewhat recently i think in uh well was it published in smithsonian magazine is there still a print edition of that or is that strictly online there isn't still a print edition in fact and yes it is so i, I write a, i write an occasional column for smithsonian where i take a look at um i take a look at some technological shift that's happening today and i find an interesting parallel in the past right because you know things repeat themselves yeah and so i do them like once or twice maybe three times a year for smithsonian but they run them online too and in this case i sort of i also wrote like to, to make things extra meta i wrote a blog post uh, about <laughs> about the piece in Smithsonian, so there's 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 a bunch of things you can chew on. Yeah, you got to use the whole animal. I get it. We got it. We got to make content here all day, every day, <laughs> right? So, so this is a this is a niche in history. I'm I'm a fan of history. I incidentally major, uh, uh, majored in history in in college, but this particular niche is one I'm a really really big fan of. The the thing X seems new and unprecedented in our society, but actually the exact same shit happened when thing Y came along and it seems like this is you have a lot of specialties but this is one of your one of your many specialties in this case you are comparing the uh rising phenomenon of renewable sources of renewable energy in our society and comparing that to when coal came along and replaced wood way back when is that about right that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, basically, what happened was uh, I, I was sort of just reading up on coal in general because I was kind of interested. Actually, to, truth to tell, I was thinking of maybe writing a book about coal and its history. Uh, but I immediately discovered that there was already written an amazing book uh, from 2003 by Barbara Fries called Coal, A Human History. But I decided to read it anyway, you know, just learn more stuff. So I got it and I read it. And in the midst of it, she's sort of talking about how um, – how uh, when coal first came along, people really didn't like it. Um, and they didn't like it for 
kind of aesthetic and cultural reasons. Like it grossed them out. They did, they, and and uh, you know, and and this struck me as interesting because I I'd been noticing how people were also aesthetically and culturally um, kind of annoyed by renewable energy. Like they didn't like looking at solar panels, you know, houses. They didn't like looking at great big wind farms. And so I thought, huh, those are really similar. And what do you know? One energy transition had cultural objections. This one does too. Off to the races. And that's how the column came to be, basically. Now, I know that you you have solar panels where you live and uh, a person who was a virtual stranger to you, I gather, was kind enough to let you know upon seeing them that you have fallen for a gigantic scam. That's correct? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a relative of a neighbor. So my neighbors, when the panels went up, uh, my neighbors were either like, "Hey, that's cool," or you know, non-committal. Um, this is this is a relative of a neighbor. He's he came from out of town, and he was like, "What is that man monstrosity on your roof?" And he's like, "You're getting scammed. This solar stuff doesn't work." He went on his whole rant, gave me the whole thing. Um, and I will say, by the way, just you know, to help visualize it, my panels are kind of interesting looking because um, normally, you know, solar panels on houses are sort of right against. The roof and the roof is kind of you know it's peaked or it's slanted right you know um in brooklyn i live in a, in a row house and all the all the row houses here are they got a flat roof or, you know, mostly flat roof you and you can't really put panels flat on the top because you know for good reasons the uh the fire department needs to be able to walk around on that roof if there's a fire and they do not want to be tripping on solar panels so what what there's this company in brooklyn brooklyn solar works that invented and patented this incredibly cool thing it's, it's like a canopy it's like a you know it's 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 just it jacks them up nine feet up high so you you kind of got if you wanted to you could hang out in your roof now you've got like a nice kind of roof cover um but it's 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 up nine feet and there's a bunch of panels on top that makes it extra visible right because now you can kind of if you're like if you're across the street you're like you look up and like wow there's this big thing on clive's roof and i think that that's aesthetically the other thing that makes it stand out and that I think my neighbor was reacting. My neighbor's relative was reacting to. Now, I, I, I even on that bit alone, I had to stop and reflect. Wind farms, I've always thought were cool. When we drive out to Palm Springs from here, we pass it. I mean, they never seem to be moving. So I've always questioned having <laughs> no knowledge, really working, having yeah. no knowledge whatsoever, the utility of these things. And I gather it wasn't cheap getting them up there, but wind farms are kind of amazing to look at. I, I, I didn't know that they were, uh, there's, there's plenty of vast nothingness to stare at. If you're really into vast nothingness, we can be spoil some of it with wind farms. I think I do understand i've never looked at the solar panels and and said god those are hideous but they are visually like a little jarring but the point is like what's weird one day can be normal the next i use the example out here in los angeles i don't know if you've heard we're basically running dry of water and they've been discouraging people for a while from uh from having lawns particularly front lawns to the extent that i think the local government has uh incentivized people to take out grass and replace it with stuff that's like more of a, a you know stuff that will actually grow naturally in a desert and sustain itself naturally and i remember having neighbors 10 years ago who took advantage of those incentives and going oof I know it's the right thing to do, but boy, I wouldn't want to come home to that. And now here we are all these years later. I'm, I'm literally, and I'm not just trying to be a libtard here, complimenting my neighbors on, oh, what, what, what wow, it's purple and it's yellow. And this stuff is actually pretty cool. So the yeah. point, the yeah. point is we, we all react to newness. Some people are wired to uh, react favorably. Some people are hardwired to be very reactionary, but literally the way a solar panel looks to you today might not be the way it looks to you in 10 years. 
No, I, I, you're exactly right. And, and, and I've felt that transition myself. So like, I, I mean, I actually have great sympathy for people that when they see solar panels starting to emerge around them, find them, you know, ugly at first, because um, they definitely, they, they're totally new and they're totally different. And when I first like contemplated putting this solar, you know, uh, uh, you know, canopy on my roof, I, I was worried about how it would look too. And so I actually moved it as far back towards the back of my house as possible to minimize how much you can see it. And I've got a tree in front of my house too. So truthfully, if you, you know, if you're, if you're walking on the sidewalk in front of my house, you can't see it. It's so far back. It's only if you're like across the street and looking. Um, but when I first looked at it, I thought, wow, that's pretty weird looking. And I'm, I'm I actually hope, I hope I didn't ruin anyone's view with it. Now, four years later, I'm like, damn, that looks like the future. It looks like some crazy cyberpunk thing that Ridley Scott would have had in an outtake from the first Aliens movie. I'm like, you know, like I, like I, I now actively want to see these all over the place. I think they look cool and steampunk and, and, just, and just really, really interesting. So aesthetics do change, absolutely. Right, and it's going to, our, our impression of the aesthetics of seeing sources of renewable energy. I live across the street from a massive power plant. Nobody was ever supposed to want to live where I live right now. This is just a yeah. fact of urbanization right now. It's yeah. pretty hideous to look at. And they just built some townhouses around the corner from me that have a gorgeous roof deck that looks out on this hideous power plant. So obviously we can incorporate things into our into our <laughs> mindset that we, we're really probably not supposed to. You talk in the article about, and the article about the article, the, the NIMBY phenomenon, the not in my backyard phenomenon when it comes to the stuff we all know nobody everybody wants jails nobody wants to live next door to one everybody wants a power plant i do live next door to one but i wish i wish that i didn't you say that that is um one of the many uh roadblocks that mm -hmm. that exist in our transition is that everybody people do actually whatever you may think you know about the american population or canadian population by and large a majority of us do understand that we will transition we need to transition nobody wants to actually see this stuff is that right yeah absolutely i mean like when you look at you know polls generally across the board like something you know it's it's a really strong majority of americans are like yeah I, I, I'd I love for there to be more renewables. I think that it would be great to like wean ourselves off fossil fuels. We don't want the pollution, all that stuff. They, they totally like that. It's just, you know, when push comes to shove, um, it, it, it's, it's aesthetically jarring to see this stuff crop, crop up in your neighborhood. Or, you know, another thing that, again, I have great sympathy for is, um, you know, big solar farms and fields, right? So you're, you know, you live, you, you move out to some small town because you want to have bucolic nature around you. Um, totally, totally great thing, right? I mean, most of my family lives in, in small town, Northern Ontario, which is unbelievably beautiful. Um, but someone comes along and, and says, okay, we're going to put like a, like a, you know, really huge solar panel farm in this field. And now you're driving past it. And instead of this nice view, there's just this wall of glass. And I, I, I do think that's jarring. In fact, I, I've sort of, I, I'm, I'm so sympathetic to that as a problem that I actually have, have after, you know, looking at, at solar over the last four or five years, I've come to the conclusion that I think it makes way more sense to, to put it on buildings instead of in fields. Like I think basically just every darn building, every commercial building, every house should just have solar. Every, every carport, you know, every car parking lot should be covered in solar so that we can leave as much as possible the green space alone, you know, and we have a lot, because, you know, these built environments, these cities are already, you know, they're already kind of weird and high tech and cement and whatnot. So like adding some more glass and some more steel is 
transforms it less than changing a field, as it were. Well, yeah, and 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 it, that's what you sign up for. Living in civilization is at least so far. <laughs> it seems to transform itself every twenty five years or so. And uh, as your work so amply demonstrates, you know, when when we went from uh, from for, you know, obviously when we went from to from horse and carriage to cars, there were objections about that. But there were also objections to bicycles. There were also objections to the horse and carriages in in the first place. Like you'll you'll complain about it, you know. Uh, Man will yell at Sky for a little while, and then we'll all we'll all move on. You did a follow up post that I, I assume was inspired by uh, the uh, uh, when Cole was new, everyone hated it, which is about uh, entitled "The End of Burning," and this is it, it's a fast, it's a small yet gigantic observation that I don't know if you had it or if it was inspired again by the the book Cole. We've argue sometimes and every time there's a new archaeological discovery uh we set the age when humanity began further and further back we're currently around two million years is where we sort of agree that humanity started you can pretty compellingly make the argument that man became man when man acquired the ability to harness the power of fire that is the that is the 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 bcad switch going from uh animal to to human We've always burned stuff. Power equals fire for millions of years. And now it would seem our only hope is to stop doing that entirely. If not now, then 30 years ago. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so that point actually came, uh, it was when I was interviewing. So for the column, you know, I, I talked to these historians uh, who um, who had all studied the emergence of coal and why people hated it. And and uh, and one of the historians I spoke to, or one of the writers I spoke to, was was Barbara Fries, the author of that terrific book, Cold a Human History. Uh, everyone should totally go out and read it. Um, so we, you know, we were we're talking with her. I'm like, I'm like, so tell me about you know your observations of why people hated coal when it came along, and and we, then we sort of talked about that. And then we talked about my comparison point with that and 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 modern renewables, people not liking the way they look. And she was like, yeah, that's you know totally interesting if we chat about that towards the very end of our conversation she sort of just made this almost throwaway point where she said you know um you know she said exactly what you what, what you said right now which is that you know humanity has been burning stuff as our primary energy source you know for cooking uh and then for heating houses and then for sort of doing industrial activity you know like blacksmithery and stuff like that and and then we and then we moved to coal moved to gas you know uh, uh but we're always still burning things that's where our electricity came from our cars are fueled by that, that nice rumble of the engine, that's, that's, that's combustion, right? And she said, you know, if we actually make this clean energy transition, you know, over the next, you know, however, however long, I hope it comes quickly, but then we will become a society that doesn't burn anything anymore. She goes, I think that's, she goes, I think that's really cool and really interesting. And I, I thought immediately, yes, that's really cool and interesting. But I also thought, wow, that's also psychologically and culturally deep. Like that's like, um, that's like Jungian level deep, right? Like that's like, these are, the fire is such an incredible symbol in our minds, in our literature and our poetry. And to, and so it made me think some, maybe some of what's going on with people's dislike, uh, aesthetic dislike of, of, of wind farms and solar energy is that on some really buried level, it's uncomfortable to move away from fire as this primal thing that we're using all the time. I mean, like, you know, I'm really just, this is a total hypothesis. I don't have any proof of this, but it just sort of made sense to me that when you, when you muck with stuff that's that deep in our cultural footprint, um, you know, you stir up emotions basically. 
Right. And this leads us to my favorite element of this strain of history writing of thing X seems super duper weird, but when it was the same shit, when now mundane thing Y came along a hundred years ago, and that's there's in my experience, when I read books or articles of this nature, there's always the moral component of, <laughs> of the changeover, like invariably, I forget who I was talking to about what recently, but bicycles, bicycles were the moral scourge of the world for reasons. I just, cause like young men could get away and all of a sudden wouldn't just be dating their cousins. Like it was really, really. No, no, 100%. You're right. Exactly right. So when Cole was new, uh, no less an authority than one of the great American authors, Nathaniel Hawthorne, argued gathering around the fire was not only warm, it was critical to the very fabric of family and society. And you couldn't gather around, uh, you, you couldn't gather around a coal-burning uh, device in the same way that you could gather around the hearth. And that... Uh, human bonds would be ripped asunder and the American experiment would fall to pieces if people switched from wood to coal. And you see this sort of thing over, you've written like seven articles of this ilk for Smithsonian, and this is a feature of just about all of them, yeah? yeah it, it, absolutely. And and to be specific about coal, what, what people didn't like about coal, because I don't think it, I've, I've said it out loud here, is that... Um, you know, for hundreds of years or for, for, or for the decades or, you know, as long as Americans had been in America uh, from from the West, um, they had heated their houses with just, you know, big open wood fires, which are really pretty and wonderful, terribly inefficient because like a huge amount of the heat just goes up the chimney. Right. Um, and so coal stoves came along partly because. America was running out of easy wood, right? Like they, they had chopped down every tree in the Northeast within like a hundred miles of every major city. Like, and, and wood prices were just skyrocketing because now you had to pay some farmer a hundred miles away to cut it down and bring it to Philadelphia or bring it to Boston. So weirdly coal was the more sustainable fuel of the time, right? It was a fuel that like there was, it was plentiful and it would not force you to tear down all the forests. Um, the problem was that to burn coal, you had to have a special coal stove and it had to be enclosed, right? So you couldn't really see the flames anymore. And that is what incensed everyone. Like you said, Hawthorne is like, wait a minute, if there's no flames to gather around, we're going to lose this bond. Harriet Beecher Stowe also wrote this really wonderful essay where she said, you know, she was just like on a fulminating lather about this. She's like the the, the, the rebels that won our freedom from Britain would not have marched barefoot for the snow for a damn closed coal stove, you know, full stop. So, And otherwise, I gather she was a fairly forward-thinking person. Oh, for sure, yeah. Now, here's the one thing I, I will say. Here's the one thing I will say. I've discovered this in writing all these columns because you're, you're right. Every technological shift has this moral fury. Society's going to fall apart. Yeah. But the, yeah. Thing, the, thing about the, the thing about the people who are suspicious of change is that they're always partially right. Right. They're like that, like they basically they're 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 often right about some element of what we stand to lose, but they have real trouble understanding what we stand to gain. And, and they, so, so they can't do a balance point um, like with Hawthorne, for example. It's like, OK, clearly society did not fall apart because we didn't have you know, hearts to gather around anymore. But we sort of figured out other hearths. Right. I mean, remember when the TV came along, that was known as like the new the new electronic hearth. That's literally what they called it because the family would sort of sit down and watch a TV show together. And then, you know, when people started watching 
watching shows on individual screens, people were like, the family's going to fall apart because they're not clustering around the TV anymore. Right. You know, like, and so like, he's, he's not wrong that it's actually good for a family or a community to have some unifying thing that brings them together. It's just that it doesn't necessarily need to be a fire and it maybe doesn't need to be a TV. Like we, we discover new ways to, to, to knit those bonds together as time goes on. We, we, we certainly should basically, if we were to lose them entirely, we would, we would definitely be in trouble. So, you know, he, he's right about a, a bigger aspect. He's, he's sort of wrong about the imminent demise of society based on fires. Well, so maybe the, 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 the point there is that if you're feel threatened, but if one feels threatened by change, one ought to maybe give humankind a little bit more credit for adaptability and ingenuity and that if there is some value that will be lost in losing x or y or z that perhaps we will not be so dumb as to not look to to replace it it. somewhere else yeah exactly Uh, yeah it's it encourages us to think well if if i'm nervous about this loss what precisely is it that i'm worried about losing right like i'm not really worried about losing the fire i'm worried about losing time hanging with my children right so you know well what are the ways what are the other ways I might hang out with my children, you know, like, or what, what new opportunities emerge? Like, you know, let's kind of like video games come along and like kids are like, Oh my God, I'm like, my parents are like my, I can't, don't see my kid anymore. But, you know, but then, then you find these, then, you know, if you're a parent who actually plays video games and I grew up playing them now, it's like literally a bonding point between me and my kids. Like during the pandemic, my son set up a Minecraft server for him and his friends because they couldn't see each other face to face. Yes. And they would just turn on the chat and they would just go at it for like six or seven hours. And then I was like, Hey, can I, can I come in? I want to build on that. They're like, totally. So now I'm in the server and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I was in there for like six hours a day, totally not working for like months at a time. And we had just an absolute blast. And so like, we're all in different rooms, but like, we're like shouting out to each other and showing each other stuff we're building. And it was like, like it was as much this classic hearth experience as you get. And that's through a video game, which, you know, people thought in the eighties were also going to destroy society. Of course, of course. Now some people think, I don't think anybody is saying that deep fake videos to uh, transition right. to another article that you wrote for Smithsonian. I don't think anyone thinks that they in and of themselves are going to be the destruction of society, but it does seem like their potential for, destruction is massive and to some maybe seemingly inevitable uh Mm. you wrote for a for point of comparison an article uh, what the history of spirit photography pretends for the future of deep fake videos for those who don't know spirit photography so spirit photography was this phenomenon in the 19th century uh right around uh, before and after the civil war and what it was, so photography itself was kind of a new thing, right? So like, it was kind of exciting that you could take a picture of someone, but it was, it was, it was well known enough that people were getting going in and getting pictures taken. And spirit photography was when a couple of photographers said, Hey, check out this photo. I think I captured a ghost in the photo. And it'd be like a photo of me sitting there, Clive, I'm alive and floating behind me. Translucent is like a photo of my deceased father. Right. And so spirit photography was this idea that you would go in to get your photo taken and a spirit photographer would also evoke and give you a photo of your dead relatives hanging out with you in that same photo. It was, and this was a huge thing. There was a guy, Hans Mummler, who was one of the big spirit photographers. He eventually went on trial for it, but it was, uh, it, it was, it was global. It was very big in the U S also big in Europe. And it went on for decades. And people were largely convinced by these, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people 
Arthur Conan Doyle, yeah. who of all people, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the, the father of this, of this, uh, uh, of Sherlock Holmes, the archetype of relying totally on reason and not emotion, right? He yes, Conan Doyle got totally in, he, he became a big spiritualist. He was convinced that fairies and ghosts were all real. He loved spirit photography. He also got hoodwinked by a bunch of teenage girls that made fake uh, fairy photos. He went to his grave defending those. Those so, are And those are uh, ludicrous if you look at those now. They're totally ludicrous. Now, here's the funny thing, though. So you're talking about like what this means for, you know, how we think about deep fakes today. The one thing that's interesting is you chat with the historians about, you know, what did people and photography experts, what did people really think of spirit photography? And they'll tell you that, you know, it's a little hard to figure out because, you know, we don't, we don't have a time machine to, to talk to them. But when you look at reactions in the press and people's diaries, people sort of were kind of like, you know, they took it seriously, but not literally. Right. Like, like they, they were like, we like the idea of talking to our dead. Civil war just happened. There was enormous amount of death in the country. Every family had multiple people that had died. Uh, young people, they were mourning them. So there was, there was a big culture of mourning and grief in the US. And so these were kind of comforting things. And, you know, the sense that the academics told me, historians are like, you know, people, people probably knew this stuff was not real, you know, on some level, but they liked they kind of they kind of liked engaging with it anyway. Like it was it was a it was it was a way to sort of think through the, their love for their for their departed people that were taken from them too quickly. And 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 uh, and the other thing that started happening is with Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so Sherlock Holmes, these fakes come along. You and I look at them and we're like, wow, those fairies look super fake. How did he get fooled? And and you might think that well, maybe we have a modern eye, so we can spy that. But at the time, like a lot of people were like, yo, those are incredibly fake. Sherlock, you know, this guy, Sherlock Holmes guy is an absolute moron. So people were actually kind of, they developed a photographic eye, a sophisticated photographic eye fairly quickly, right? You know, and, and this to me is actually holds it a little bit of hope for our interaction with deepfakes because, you know, it, 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 you know, I think it's already, it's already sort of happening that there's this sense of like, wow, you know, hey man, check out this deepfake I just saw on TikTok, right? Like there's like, like an, an emerging literacy about what seems probable and what seems improbable. In, right. In, you know. And that's and that's sort of the trillion dollar question where deep fakes are are concerned uh is yep. not everything is just the new this that's exactly the same as that, you know, cars actually were faster than horses and buggies and uh, an airplane is actually a more effective way of getting across the country than a yes. car ever could be. So, when we talk about deep fakes Outside of just nonsense fun that is completely harmless, we're talking about two things. You say in the article, 90% of deepfakes nowadays currently putting the faces of non-adult performers into and inserting them into pornographic videos. It's hard to imagine, I think, for any of us how it would feel to have a stranger do that to you, and uh, probably doubly so if you are a man, to imagine how it would feel if you were a woman. At a societal level, though, I would I would say the more dangerous... Uh, uh, danger posed by deepfakes is um, the, its ability to disrupt political discourse. Number one, like the first level of that would be, did you see the video of the president saying we're declaring war and people fall for it? And that's bad. 
But arguably even worse is when video evidence becomes worthless because of the possibility that it can't be faked. And you might know better than I. I believe, even though that technology, it's really not that sophisticated yet, I believe I've read at least two or three stories of like local politicians getting caught red-handed and going, no, 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 deep fake, deep fake. So I guess my question is this, to the extent that any of us are qualified to answer this in 2022, um... We, you and I, can look at uh, manipulated photos from the 19th century and easily say, those are not real fairies. Arthur Conan Doyle, you're ridiculous. Do you have faith that in that same way we will collectively develop the ability to spot the difference between real and deep faked videos, even as the technology continues to evolve? Right. Yeah, I um, I think uh, I, I'm cautiously optimistic Although I'm going to give a very pessimistic note that on top of that, the oh, yeah. optimism is I actually think, yes, I think that people um, will uh, develop more of a sense of, you know, the, the possibility of this being a deep fake or being able to recognize as being a deep fake. Uh, and you can already see that a little bit in, in the whole in the whole sort of area of, you know, weaponized pornography, you know, where like you you sort of take like a, 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 a an actor or actress that you, you know, and, and put their face on a on a in a porn scene you know that stuff is already in one one sense that's not even done for the purpose of fooling anyone it's literally just a culture of hey i put this famous uh, actress's face on this porn star check it out like they're, they're not even trying to fool anyone like they're literally using it as a humiliation vector because of its fakeness right yeah so yeah. uh so but i i do think actually in addition to there being actual tools like automated tools like the ai filters that can detect yeah that's a deep fake because the pixels are just don't quite perform the way they, they should in a normal video i think detection will not be as hard the, here's the bigger problem we've got here's a much bigger problem we've got um one is that because we already have this very low trust political environment um and a low trust media environment um the problem that deep fakes really pose is that now Anyone could say when, when a real video comes up, real document comes out from a phone saying of something bad happening, the person who's been caught can just say, oh, that was faked. Right. That's a that's a deep fake. And so it becomes very easy to use it as a way to um, to denigrate and get people to, to, to be suspicious of and to not believe even real documentary evidence. Right. So we actually have a kind of a deeper cultural problem. And and, and, and the thing that Hani Farid, who's like a specialist uh, in fake and manipulated video and pictures. Something he told me that is additionally sort of pessimistic. He, he says, you know, I've we've wondered, everyone in the in the in the in the in the world of like, you know, manipulating imagery and manipulating videos, we've wondered when are we going to see more and more deep fakes in politics? And we haven't seen them. Why? And he goes, you know, I think the answer is you can actually do so much more damage so much easily with just a shallow fake. Right. You don't need if you have a politician that you want to say something, you know, wrong about you want to lie about them. You don't need to carefully craft a video of them, you know, doing something fake. You could just literally take a picture of them looking stupid that you found eating food, write a caption saying so and so believes this and put that up. And then that will that will get 10 million follows and likes right you know like so in low trust media environments we have second order problems that are maybe even bigger than whether or not we can actually detect whether these things are fake maybe i get what you're saying at the same time um you know for example i'm pretty sure the january 6th committee is looking for the smoking gun of 
of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, true, saying true. the saying the yeah. thing that they wish to have video of him saying because that's the only incontrovertible proof. But right. and that's more valuable than Joe Biden's dumb and he did this dumb thing and now your gas is expensive and look at this picture of him with his face all screwed up. <laughs> they they, true, they can both true. be really bad. Yeah, they can both be bad. Although I mean, like. You know that, like, the, an interesting question is how effective are these hearings going to be? Because y- you're right, they're trying to find real documentary evidence and present it with the imprimatur of this stuff is all being presented under in a congressional hearing where you, if you lie, it's a, it's 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 illegal, right? So, but you know, the sixty four thousand dollar question, and I just wonderfully dated myself by saying that the sixty four thousand dollar question is, you know, is that actually more powerful than Here's Joe Biden, you know, looking dumb and old and tripping over something or us claiming he tripped over a cat that, you know, gets shared 10 million times on Facebook. You know, I mean, like that, that's this. This is what this is to me is what's really uh, the really unsettling question about our media environment right now is whether even stuff that that is correct and true has the power of stuff that is um, easily proven to be false. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, even if they had not deep faked video of yeah. Donald Trump going, all right, so here's the plan. You go here, you do this, you do yeah. that. That that yeah. wouldn't be as much as Joe Biden is dumb. And yeah, 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 yeah. Here's, here's Joe Biden tripping over a cat. I photoshopped it. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like which has which has greater power right now in our in our in our political discourse. I'm I'm a little worried. It's door number two, right? You know, yeah, uh, and you and you you might well be right. Um, but then again, isn't it the nature of human society to always think that the wheels are just about to come off? Why, just two years ago. You wrote an article for Smithsonian about yeah. how uh, the original selfie craze was the mirror, and was there a moral component? Oh, yes, there was. Oh yeah, I mean, th- this one was fun. Uh, um, so basically, you know, selfies came along, and everyone was convinced that it was going to, you know, uh, um, uh, not just destroy people, but more importantly, this was a more evidence of the utter shallowness of mostly young women right you know uh and so there was just these you know endless endless you know anti-selfie articles written mostly by like guys like me like you know grumpy middle-aged guys basically you know we're we're the we're the (laughs) we're the you know the 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 a team for writing you know uh you know uh, um sort of dour you know cultural criticism well our selfies suck what else are we gonna say yeah, I know my selfies are, you know, uh, I got the, I got, I'm, no one can see me because, you know, we're not on video, but I've got like this $250, you know, light rig that basically manages to iron out enough of my wrinkles that I, I look, uh, I, I look passable in a photo now. Stunning. So, so selfies come along, people freak out about them. They say this, this is because everyone is such a narcissist and such an idiot. And moreover, it will make us more narcissistic and more idiotic. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I've heard that before. And yes, this is exactly the discourse around mirrors when mirrors first started becoming omnipresent in kind of the late 19th century they figured out how to make them cheap and they just sort of exploded everywhere and there was definitely and there there'd been you know for for centuries maybe millennia a concern that mirrors were a marker of and a causer of narcissism i mean that's that's that whole idea of the myth of narcissus right you know he looks in a pool falls in love with himself falls in love with himself so much that he loses touch with the world and sort of just vanishes. Right. So that's the, er, the er idea about mirrors is that they, they just, they're just going to turn you into a total idiot. And uh, it was very, very similar when mirrors suddenly exploded, people were very, very worried about the effects it had and it had real effects, right? Like, you know, suddenly you had makeup compacts and women were able to put on, you know, on makeup and 
in all sorts of different places. And makeup became a lot better. Cosmetics shot upwards in quality and sophistication. Like if you, if we, if you took someone back and showed them the makeup in like 1850, you know, you'd be like, wow, you look like you've got weird vaudeville grease paint on your face. And then by like 1920, it was like, oh, you, you look like a modern person with like artfully done stuff, you know, that, that is not overly done. It's just a little bit. It's really, really interesting what happened. But yes, there was, there was moral fire uh, focused against mirrors. It's something I'd actually given a bit of thought to that uh, I'd asked myself if, uh, say, a, a Native American person pre-Columbus, other than looking into still water, can, can anybody imagine what it's like to live your entire life not knowing what you look like? That's right. And to not know what you look like in very good granular detail, right? Because yeah. mirrors yeah, sort of, you know, pre, uh, you know, pre-modern or pre-Western mirrors existed, but they were, they were cruder in their detail. Like you would take a piece of um, black, uh, some black slate material and you would polish it, you know, and you could get actually, you know, the Egyptians had that, they had pretty good mirrors, but you know, it was nowhere near the resolution of a modern mirror. And there's some, some historians have sort of hypothesized that that the growth of the mirror in the kind of the, the, the 17th and 18th centuries, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, if you were rich, you could afford a big mirror, like literally a full length mirror where you could see your whole body at cost. You would have to sell off an estate to get that made. That's yeah, if I can briefly in, in, that, yeah. interrupt you, that was the most stunning fact from that article. In the early 1800s, a French nobleman sold a piece of land in order... It, and I'm sure he had plenty of pieces of land, but still, you only get so many of those to be able to buy a single mirror. And any one person can be a narcissistic outlier, but assuming that person is representative of the rest of us at all, if you had lived in a world where you had never been able to clearly see yourself, and now it was within reach at all, so great was the pull of having that ability 24 hours a day that this person sold land. He said, oh, all I'm using it is to grow wheat, as if that's nothing. I'm sorry, go on, but that's so stunning to me. No, no, no you, you nailed it, absolutely. I mean, I think that really, that really draws a nice line under just how mesmerizing this experience must have been in that time, right? To go from not really knowing what you look like to being able to, at any point in time, look at yourself in full figure, your yeah. whole body. So that's what I look like. So, so some of the people that study this said, you know, they wonder, again, there's no way to prove it, but interesting hypothesis, if this had some effect on the growth in the upper classes of the idea of the individual as a distinct person from uh from the bonds of community right which which is the classic concept that you find in you know in in this enlightenment liberalism you know i as a person have rights and an identity that are utterly separate from people around me and now you know we enlightenment thinkers have to figure out well what does society look like if we consider that to be the primary actor an individual uh, as opposed to a group of people which is kind of more the primary actor in the medieval period right and so so they essentially said maybe maybe mirrors had something to do with that. And I think I think that's kind of a cool hypothesis. It, it, it might be true. Right. It seems there's a lot of evidence that the cult of self, you know, really begins, obviously, with enlightenment, at least in the Western world, and ex yeah. explodes with, uh, I mean, there's there's so many different things that would drive that democracy, obviously, capitalism. Yes. There's, there's lots and lots and lots of things. But whether or not um, the cult of self that the 20th century saw 
um, it, it, maybe it wasn't caused by mirrors, but I think it's easy to make the case that it was propelled to a great extent by our yeah. ability to, you know, you, you, why would you care about what clothes you looked like or what, whether you had the most fashionable hairstyle, if you couldn't even see yourself anyway, because most of us aren't really dressing for other people so much as we're dressing for the selves that we want to show other people. And, and, you know, and we definitely know, even now, surrounded by mirrors, you know, we moderns know that looking at ourselves, uh, you know, has, has a destabilizing or self-reflective element. Because, you know, one of the things about the Zoom explosion in the pandemic was that people were like, I've never looked at myself so much, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're on Zoom all the time and there's this little postage stamp of yourself and your eye keeps flicking up to it right uh and there was there was actually when i talked to some psychologists i kind of wrote about remote work in the early in the early months uh for the new york times magazine because it just it happened so suddenly and so it was you know people were talking about zoom fatigue like kind of getting a little a little worn out after doing eight hours of zoom and there's a bunch of reasons for that um but one of them you know is that looking at yourself that much <laughs> can be a little can be a little stressful right because you know like you're not we're not accustomed to looking at ourselves that much and there's like wow do i look like that when i when i you know when i pick my teeth or something you know it's it's it, it, it was it was a weird moment it, it was an er mirror moment uh the the advent of of zoom and remote so in your opinion <clears throat> our uh is is constant like a lot of selfie taking better or worse or the same as looking in a mirror let's put it this way i have a four-year-old daughter she's already got a little vanity in her room she likes dinosaurs but she likes the princess thing we're in a good place with her but let's say eight nine years from now she sits around all day either she's taking constant selfies of herself and putting them on instagram or she's just a 1970s style marcia brady sitting in front of a mirror all day brushing her beautiful flaxen hair is one worse than the other you see i actually think that selfies on their own i don't think they have any particular deleterious effect actually i think they can even be really positive because it's a way for people everything i've read and heard about them and talking to people is that they're it can be almost a creative thing it's like a way of understanding who you are trying on different identities here's how i'm going to look this way um when it's done in private i think the problem is not the selfies but social media that's built around selfies i see yeah. you know like, like like where where like oh now the goal is to put up a selfie that gets 1000 10000 100000 likes right like that's a that's a qualitatively different activity than just having the phone in your hand and going hey what do i look like when i make this face you know that that's just a self reflective thing that's actually kind of thinking about your identity trying on new identities totally i think it's like salutary frankly um it's the sort of chasing after approval that happens when you have so social networks built entirely around selfies which is kind of what tiktok is in the video format that's 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 more problematic if you ask me I well say. yeah you, you you just just one is a private act and one is a public act precisely precisely yeah one is thinking about yourself one is seeking the approval of others and uh, finally, this is sort of an unrelated subject, but it's a really interesting career you've got for yourself. You write about all kinds of stuff. And I'm not even, I, I, I gather the tech stuff, which is way above my mental capacity, is sort of your, your bread and butter. But uh, go ahead. Uh, no, no, I, I don't think it's above your, I, I, I strongly doubt it's about, above your, uh, your, your pay grade, but carry on, carry on. <laughs> Uh, last month you or, or so, you wrote an article how big lie harassment is driving local election officials to quit. I've been looking for the right guest to talk to about uh, about the big lie. I just think it's um, as remarked upon 
as it is in our culture and in our news, I still think it's under remarked upon. It's uh, it's 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 just a massive, massive, massive big deal. And you touched on it in a way that's uh, useful, I think, because it's specific. It's not, hey, Hitler did this and Trump did that, and what does this all mean? Which are really uh, unanswerable questions in in the present. You have a very informed opinion about electronic voting machines and local election officials because you spent time around both uh, a, a decent amount of time back in 2008, right? That's right. Yeah. The New York Times Magazine asked me to write a story about electronic voting machines. Like the, I should say specifically the, the touchscreen style, right? You know, where you touch the screen to vote because there had been an increasing amount of controversy about whether or not they were reliable, um, ranging from fears of them being hackable to um, a lot of very well-documented concerns of them just being flaky and bugging out. And so I, um, I essentially spent a couple months where I traveled to several um, uh, hotspot states, you know, that were, that were, that were really toss-ups in, in the upcoming election, uh, specifically Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And I just, you know, I, I drove all over the place, I, particularly with Pennsylvania. I literally drove from one end to the other, stopping at lots of different um, towns and counties. And, you know, and so there and in Florida and in, and in Cleveland, my goal was to sort of figure out, are these machines reliable? Are they hackable? And but as, as a side effect, I got exposed to like scores and scores of local elections officials. And uh, they just impressed the heck out of me. I thought they were amazing people, basically, you know, uh, um, and, and that's that's essentially what. You know, when, when I wrote this piece about about the big lie and its effect on elections, I said, you know, what's happening and what's been pretty well documented by now is that because uh, there is a, um, a chunk of the American public that, you know, believes Trump's uh, incessant uh, insistence uh, that he actually won the election, that there was massive electoral fraud. Well, that fraud has to be done by election workers. And so these election workers have all started getting, you know, everything from flat up death threats to, um, you know, constant harassment to being challenged in upcoming elections by people who are, who are, you know, 100% believers of the big lie and their lives have become quite miserable. And, 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 and 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 their their patriotism is challenged and again like when i met these people these are all like you know a lot of them are older americans uh, a lot of them have been working you know on a volunteer or near volunteer like i.e very badly paid level for decades helping their county run elections fairly and whether or not they were independent or republican or democrat they were all like i'm here to make this work fair you know if my candidate the person i think wins doesn't win I don't care. I'm I'm here to run this in a really fair way. They were like these guys were literally like salt of the earth Americans, you know, the like the best civic minded people I'd ever met. And to see them get attacked on and targeted and harassed by uh, because of this lie, you know, upset me to, to no degree. To put some specifics on it. According to your article, one in six election officials have personally experienced a threat of some kind, and more than half of those, which is to say one in 12, have been threatened 
in person. And that's a that's a big umbrella that either is that somebody saying, hey, listen, yeah. I know I know your social security number. I know where your kids go to school. Or is that, hey, you son of a bitch, if I get my hands on you, they're 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 all threats and they're all yeah. uh, uh, unwelcome and and creepy. And uh, uh, and obviously uh, there's no place for them in our system. Now, looking at this, I I, I actually expected the numbers of the, 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 the polling reflected in your article to be worse right yes. than it than it was to play devil's advocate mm-hmm. although concerns for election integrity have been uh raised significantly as we all know by yeah. trump and people in league with him um it seems like it, it could be worse 33 percent of the election officials that were surveyed for this people who you say and i believe we all know the people who work down they're, they're awesome the people who run the elections are the best people our community has to to offer these are fair sane smart people only 33 percent said that too many political leaders are attacking a system they know is fair and honest that's kind of shocking you would think if anybody was going to be the standard bearer the last line of defense of election integrity that means two-thirds of them don't think that the integrity of elections is under attack despite the fact that the guy who lost the last one incessantly lies about it don't you find that sort of striking uh yeah i i think that uh i I think there's there's another stat in there that was heartening uh um which is that uh a, a a strong majority of the elections officials that were polled in this in the study uh said they were actually ha- still happy with their jobs right like they still like they still were doing doing the job and still enjoying it right so whether or not and 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 one of the interesting problems we've got when we're looking at this data is um we, it's a snapshot in time but they have, to my knowledge i looked for the it and i couldn't find it there's no historical comparison points right like we don't know you know what were the threats against election officials 10 years ago what were they 20 years ago? What were they even, let's say, I, I don't know, uh, two two years ago? Because that knowing that information could be useful for helping us figure out whether or not this is, is this just something that's been there for a long time? I mean, it doesn't seem to be from from their their sort of comments. Is it, is it increasing to the point where it's going to become more like half in a year? I don't know. Also, geographically, I wondered, well, where is this distributed? Because the one thing I learned when I, you know, sort of did my tour around these states is that battleground states are a lot more heated, you know, uh, than non-battleground states. Like are election officials in New York state here getting those types of threats at the level that they're getting them in say Arizona, you know, which was where Trump went absolutely livid, you know, when it was called for, um, when it, when it, when it was called for his opponent. I, um, uh, you know, I, I, it may be that like, that the the national numbers are disguising the fact that some areas have zero complaints and zero pressure from politicians and other places are like it's more like 50 to 60 percent you know what i mean it's like like there could be hot spots where it's like really bad and other other areas where yeah it's just you know things are chugging along as usual so that's the officials about the machines themselves. I don't even know. I, I You would know better than I if we're even using the same machines or the same software in 2020 that we used in 2008. But you came away with what I think was um, a, a not charged take. Uh, yeah. You uh, There was, I think, a bipartisan consensus that the voting machines could be better and should be better and should be a lot better that that is that is the case right yeah 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 i mean basically what i discovered was that like no serious people 
that look at these things thought that any election had been hacked or was likely to be hacked in the near future. It's just partly because it's just too hard to do so. Um, uh, America, uh, it's a downside and it's an upside, but we have extremely uh, decentralized elections. Every county has their own bunch of machines. If you really wanted to mess with a state, even you'd need to go around and hack so many different machines that you're going to get caught, right? So hacking, not so much. Um, well, okay, now, let, let me ask you a question about that, though. So, but sure, yeah. I, I understand what you say. Just a, a happy fluke that it's very decentralized. Yeah. That really that really yeah. suits where we are in a technological age. But let's just say I'm a bad actor and I'm mm -hmm. looking at next time around. Well, Arizona only went by so many. Georgia only went by so many. If we could flip a couple of counties, we could flip the entire election. That's, yes. that's a yeah. mission slightly more possible. No, absolutely. And and in fact, actually, the thing I was going to say, if, if you wanted a, a place that's much easier to hack and cause havoc, it is not in the voting machines. It is in the voter tally databases, which are centralized and every state has them. And it turns out they were not terribly secure either, because if you really want to cause havoc, what you do is you, you uh, hack into that centralized database for the entire state, tallies of who's allowed to vote, and you knock a couple of counties out. And you basically say, hey, you know, no, uh, all these people, I'm going to make it so they're not allowed to vote. It'll get resolved in paper on the day of, but it'll cause chaos, enormous lineups, right? So, yeah. Are there ways to hack it that you could do that'd be much easier to do than having to, like, get into, like, 450 individual machines that are getting caught, you know? Yeah, you could do that. But anyway, let's get to the, the larger conclusion of, the, of this, of that piece I wrote back then. Yeah. Uh, is that whether or not anything, there's any hacking going on. These machines were unbelievably cheaply made and just flimsy and crappy and filled with unbelievably buggy software. Like basically, I mean, the story is, and this is like a, you know, this is like a libertarian, libertarian 101 reason to like be suspicious of huge, huge uh, government cash giveaways, right? You know, um, is after the 2000 election was chaotic because of those quote unquote hanging chads, you know, which was like little paper punches that had um, didn't really go through all the way. Uh, Congress said, okay, we're going to give billions away so that all these counties can move away from these horrible hanging chads and buy electronic, modern electronic voting machines. And that meant that suddenly counties that had tiny budgets before, you know, a county of like, you know, 10,000 people suddenly had like $2 million, you know, to buy electronic voting machines with very decentralized. And what that meant is that voting, a lot of voting machine companies sprung up uh, and they, they said, hey, we can cobble together a voting machine on the cheap overseas and sell it to all these counties. And they won't be very good. And we're going to make a ton of money. And those machines were just crap, man. They crashed. Screens didn't didn't work very well. They would they would flip around. And Republicans complained about this. Democrats complained about this. Independents complained. There, I, there was a mayor who literally in a town of 10 people did not get a single vote. And he's pretty sure he voted for himself on that machine, right? You know, so these machines don't work. That was a problem. Are those machines still being used today? Um, much less, thankfully, because it became so clear that they were just a buggy mess and untrustworthy. A lot of states started moving towards um, paper ballots that you scan using one of those like Scantron things. So right? you fill in the bubbles, scan it. It's the best of both worlds. Easy to use. Everyone. The old, the young, they know how to fill in a bubble. Uh, quick, you scan it really quickly. Not much technology, minimal technology, and easy to recount. So there's something on the order of like 
Boy, I, I don't want to give out stats here because I'm, I haven't looked at this in a while ago, but I wrote about it. I wrote about the growth of that paper balloting a couple of years ago for Wired, and I was very heartened by the trend. A lot of states are moving away from it. Not all states, but many of moving away from those terrible, terrible, terrible machines. Right. So to me, like this, the complaints about the uh, the 2016 election and now all of a sudden we care. I'm sorry, the 2020 election and now we care right. so much about the state of the technology and the integrity of the election. Well, where where were you on this when you won by a hair, uh, you know, four, yeah. four, four years ago in that in that that's the subtext that, you know, is frankly more important to me than right. than the text is. But, yeah. and, and that's why you see. You know, I, I, I do try to keep tabs on what percentage of people who are running for office as a Republican uh, toe the line of the big lie. And I do find that the two camps do sort of get grouped together as one. And the one is, yes, the election was stolen from Trump and we're going to get him restored as president or whatever insane fantasies they harbor. But then there's the other guys and ladies who find the middle ground of where they don't really address the big lie, but if you go on their campaign website, there's always a great big section about election integrity, which is which is <laughs> pandering to that demographic without actual... No, I'm just talking about, hey, we just want fair elections here. So I don't want to be as childish about this as I'm accusing many other people of being, if indeed our, uh, our election system is deeply imperfect then changes need to be made even if it seems that we're doing that and placating a toddler in the process so what you know you said the paper bubbles are on the rise but basically where do we need to be how do we get there how far are we on the way to that and how likely is it that we will get to where we truly need to be all politics aside to yeah. have the fairest possible cleanest elections well i mean uh, now you're straining the limits of my knowledge because I, I'm not as up on the policy side of it. Uh, uh, I came in through the technology side. And I got well, let, let me put it to you this way. But I can fumble towards an answer, though. Um, my sense, my, my, my rough sense is that actually, and that this has been generally confirmed by all the audits done, is that uh, that all this, all, all, every time you see one of those um, you know, statements, you know, maybe a maybe a, a politician is not saying i believe the big lie i believe trump won but they do have a section saying election integrity is incredibly important um e e election integrity is incredibly important and from everything we can tell and people had to look at this really closely because of trump claiming he won they had to look very closely at how how well were things run things were run incredibly well like there's actually i don't think there's any significant policy improvements that are particularly needed because everyone who's saying that integrity is falling in elections is wrong. Like that is that that is basically itself also a lie and has been a lie since you know uh, um, Bush the Bush the first was running and they were talking about there being mass uh, you know mass fake voting on the Democratic side. Like this 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 idea that there's mass amounts of fraud is very old and it has been wrong. It was wrong back then and it's wrong now. Right. So. So the answer to making this this problem go away is is it can't be achieved by making elections safer because they're already very safe. You know, uh, um, I mean, uh, the 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 problem is really ultimately is a political and cultural one. It's like you know how do how do people who who understand that this is real respond to that and get that message out 
to everyone else uh, in the Republican side who might be getting an awful lot of messaging from their representative, from Fox News, from uh, uh, online sites saying, yeah, like elections are just scams and they're being run by all these corrupt people. Manifestly not true. So you can't fix that problem. You have to fix the belief structure and the reasons for that belief structure. And I, I don't know how to do that. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, it, it, it's stunning. I just assumed this whole time, and maybe there's a bunch of stories on Fox News that I don't know about in this regard, right. or Newsmax, or what have you, but I was like, oh my God, all they're going to need to find is one mailman who threw their bag into a river to say, see, there you go. There's the whole election for you. Whereas in leading up to this, I interviewed... I can't remember his name, the filmmaker who made a documentary about Florida and the recount in 2020. Right. And I've always, I said this to him then, if it actually comes down to 300 votes and you got your Roger Stone down there and I got my whoever the heck, you know, the Michael Dukakis, whoever the hell the John Kerry, the Democrat sent down there, to a certain extent, if we're down to the trench warfare of local politics, I can actually make the case I want the candidate who can pull off that little bit of chicanery that it takes to get over the finish line, because that's the guy we want our, you know, debating with Putin. We don't want the Boy Scout, you know? Like, I just assume that if we're down to, it's the same thing like with sports. If it comes down to the last shot, we're, it's not about the best team winning. It's just the ball goes in or it doesn't. The, pot goes in, right. the puck goes in the net or it doesn't. I assumed that if we got down to 1,000 votes or 10,000 votes in Arizona, it was just going to be whose Dirty Tricks team was better than the other Dirty Tricks team. But that does not seem to have been the case. Like, I, am I living in some fanciful <laughs> left-wing reality, or are there stories out there? It, I mean, the stories that you find are literally so-and-so's mother died, and they cast a vote on her behalf as well. I mean, just completely inconsequential fraud. Yeah. Now, the truth is, like, like the systems as they're run uh, are, you know, are, are pretty resistant to mass fraud. They're, they're frankly resistant to even trivial amounts of fraud. Right. You know, it's just it's just hard to do. It's really, really, really hard to do in, in the same way that, like, you know, what one of the things that calmed me down the most about the kind of hacking of individual voting machines Um and I'm going to set aside the hacking of the centralized voter databases. I think that's actually still possible to do and would be a very big problem. Yeah. But hacking, yeah. hacking, like getting your hands on like 100, 200, 300 voting machines in, in, so you can tip a county and doing it without being detected. Like there was this guy, uh, he's quoted, I'm forgetting his name. He, he was in Pittsburgh, a terrific professor who studied, you know, electoral um, uh, electoral fraud and and voting machines for years. And he said, look, no one ever pulls out, no one ever pulls off the perfect crime the first time. He said, if, if people were going to hack voting machines at a level that was going to tip a county, you would see several failed attempts that were caught leading up to a successful one. And we have never even seen a bungled failed one, you know? Uh, and and that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where I was like, yeah, it's just like, you know, this fraud is hard to do. Uh, it's hard to do at scale. It's hard to get that tens of thousands of people to pretend to be someone else or pretend to be dead. That's why this stuff just doesn't never makes any sense is that, you know, the system, the, the, the upside of this highly decentralized system is that it is just, that stuff is just, just really hard to do basically at scale, hard to do at scale. Well, that's encouraging. Um, yeah. Well, Clive Thompson, uh, we talked about a bunch of stuff here today, but uh, it, it, barely begins to uh, suggest the breadth of the topics that you 
write about. Um, I, uh, as I said, I, 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 I am new to medium.com. It's, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm actively, and I'm sure I can't be the only person who's thinking along these lines. It's like, okay, I'm not going to stop myself from, uh, looking at my phone more than I wish to. So at least let me try to give myself some more productive outlets for wasting my time staring at that tiny little screen. So, um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll plug you in plugging the site itself. It's just a bunch of different, uh, independent journalists who, post i mean just you name the subject people are are posting about it and for like five bucks a month you get on there and you can see your stuff and everybody else's and maybe stop doom scrolling through whatever your doom scroll of of choices this is slightly less uh slightly less doomy to be scrolling through <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, i mean the, the one of the things i've always liked about medium and i've been sort of writing on it for like you know 10 years since it started was that um it, it's kind of like it's it's like old school blogging right it's right. like you know i've got 500, 1,000, 4,000 words I want to say on the subject. And so even, you know, like, and it's not just journalists too. It's like people from all walks of life. Like I, some of the people I follow are like, you know, physicians uh, or, you know, people who work in the music industry or who are writing about the psychology of dating and stuff. Like it's, it's pretty wild. I got to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm an old school blogger from like, I started blogging in 2002 with like a self-hosted blog. And I, I love the idea of like, I can read long, longer form stuff. I can find just people I would never have heard of and, and immerse myself in their ideas. I love that. So I still get, this is like probably the last outpost, you know, uh, of it on the internet that I, that I, that I find is, is medium. Well, I think that there, I forget the exact nature of the moral panic when the internet came along, but I'm fairly sure that there was, there was one and probably still is one. But I thought one of the most underrated, uh, severely underrated elements of digital technology is that, in a culture that seemed like it may be moving away from reading as we all stared at TV screens all the time. Now you had no choice. Text messaging is writing and reading. AOL instant messenger was writing and reading. And we've seen in the last 10, 15 years, the internet go away from a, a word medium to much more of a, of an image and video right. medium. And it was a beautiful little, golden age there i've got essentially letters that i wrote to my ex-girlfriends in the 90s because we were emailing each other and it's it's just because we weren't writing it with a quill doesn't mean that we weren't writing each other letters and so i'm really excited about any outpost um uh, uh remaining outpost uh disappearing though they may be of the internet of words absolutely although i will i'll, I'll give a shout out to um hey podcasting right like yeah. that's that's what they might be written words, but they're spoken words and they are way more thoughtful words than what you can find on most broadcast radio and certainly most broadcast TV. I mean, I think that podcasting has been one of the uh, one of the one of the, at its best, you know, definitely one of the things really raising the game in terms of people you know, having ways to, I, I want to hear about ideas and thoughtful stuff and a real conversation that goes on for an hour. Like we just had, I mean, this is nuts. People don't do this, you know, in a lot of other places. So I think sort of like, you know, the, the, the long form blogging that exists and the podcasting are like the kind of, you know, to me, the real treasures of that the internet has given us basically. People can find you. It's very easy at Clive Thompson dot medium dot com and then when they're there they can check out all the other fun stuff on medium uh thank you so much for all your stuff and thank you for spending some time with us I had a great time let's do it again sometime <laughs> <laughs>